fantastic to see you. Um, yeah, true story, I'm a Reds fan. It was the 1986 FA Cup final, the first game that I can remember watching as a 10-year-old and Ian Rushgore twice. And um, forever, from that moment, I've been hooked. So I am a Southern supporter. It's true, Sussex boy, but sorry, Chris. But we're one in Christ here. That's all right, isn't it? Yeah, that's good if you say so. So it's great to um, be in Liverpool for the weekend. So yeah, yeah, like Chris said, been with my family, my cousin Johnny. He's actually here. He's just nipped out. He's going to come back in a moment. I've travelled with my daughter, um, Ruby. So I've got um, one wife and four kids. So my kids are 17, 15, um, 9 and 6. And um, so I'm teaching one to drive and one to read kind of simultaneously. Um, the whole kind of spread. But Ruby, who's um, 15, is with me this weekend, which is fantastic. And I've really look, been looking forward to being with you guys. Heard so much about the church. And I've got to know uh, your elders. And so I've really, really been looking forward to this. Um, back at home base, the church that I lead is called the King's Church Mid-Sussex. And they say hi, and we've been praying for this weekend as a team. We've actually got baptisms in our church this morning back in Sussex, which is always good. I'll just tell you briefly one of the stories, because um, one of the ladies getting baptized, we first met her four years ago. Um, we were doing a teaching series called Big Objections in our church. So we were looking through what are the objections that people in our community have uh, about Christianity or against the idea of there being a God. And we decided to take a team out on the streets in our town with a little video camera saying, can we ask you some questions um, about God and Christianity? Have you got any objections? And this lady was incredibly angry and aggressive when approached and asked. And it's one of those moments where you think, oh, maybe this wasn't such a good idea that we did this. But she poured out a heart that she had just literally, um, her 18-month son had just died. And um, we, the team, it wasn't me, but the team had a conversation with her about that. And she was so angry at God. Couldn't believe there was a God. And yet a lady on that team out in the street stayed in touch with her via Facebook and just stayed in touch and kept in contact with her. And then about six months ago, this lady said, look, I haven't found any answers anywhere else. Um, how do I find out more about what you believe? And so Lady Gemma said, why don't you come on in there? Then we run called the Alpha Course. So last term she did Alpha, gave her life to Jesus, and this morning she's getting baptized in our church, which is just phenomenal, isn't it? The gospel is good news for everyone. So we are encouraged. So the church say hi. And I believe you had Simon Elliott last weekend. He's a good friend. Did he behave himself? No, no, I'm not surprised. He's a good mate of mine, Simon, so it's great to be able to follow in his footsteps. He's a great guy, he loves Jesus, and um, it's just great to be in a family of churches, isn't it? Um, it's so important that we're not independent. I've been part of a church that was um, independent, and, um, and when there was trouble, we had nowhere to go, and there was trouble, and it was horrible, because we, we had no support, no mutual encouragement or friendship across other churches, and then I joined New, New Frontiers is, and obviously there's been transition with New Frontiers, but we're part of New Ground, still part of that bigger New Frontiers family. And it's so important that we are not independent as churches, that we can encourage one another. This event that Chris has been talking about, um, I'm going to be there this week. There's going to be a number of churches represented where we're going to be encouraging one another and provoking each other and learning from one another and supporting one another. And so it's so important to be part of something where you are mutually dependent upon others. I believe it's a very important biblical idea. And it's actually what I want to talk about this morning, about the relationships we have within the local church. So our relationships that we have with one another. 
how God has actually put us together for a purpose because we need one another for our growth and for our growth in God and our discipleship and our encouragement and support. The local church is um, a glorious God idea. And so I want to talk about our relationships in the church this morning. I've called this morning subject, Submit to One Another, which that word submit kind of it means all kind of things in our culture. We'll talk about that a little bit. We're not called to walk this Christian life alone. We're called to work it out in community and in relationship. Now, obviously, I don't know your stories. Um, I don't know uh, whether you have been going to church for years or whether this is your first time ever in a church, whether you're new to the church thing. But there's all kinds of ideas, aren't there, about what church is. So for many people still in our context and culture, when people think church, they think building. They think it's, it's a building. So whether that be a, a warehouse like we've got or whether it be a cathedral in city center or whether it be a like country village church. When people think church, they might think building or for other people, they might think um, it's a meeting that you go to. So I go to church. It's a service that I attend. And obviously churches need buildings. You guys need a building. You're meeting in a school and we have meetings and they're incredibly important. But if you were unable to meet in this building um, next weekend, Freedom Church Liverpool would still exist. Because it's not about the building, it's not about the meeting, it's about the people, it's about the community. That is what the church is. It's the gathered people of God in a location. And actually, as we look through um, what the Bible says, it's incredibly practical about how that community is meant to function. And how those relationships are meant to exist. Who, Who here knows... There is not always beautiful, angelic harmony in the local church. Anyone know there's moments where actually there can be frustrations with one another or um, someone might really wind you up and annoy you or offend you without even realizing. And it's all to do with relationships. Well, the Bible speaks a lot about that stuff, actually, and why it's so important that we think about it. The language that the, uh, the Bible uses is that of family and community, and body, and togetherness, and oneness. So I want to look at all of that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying. About 2,000 years ago. Not specific to the date, but you get what I'm saying. Jesus is praying, and he was praying for you. I don't know if you realize that, but there's a prayer that we read in John chapter 17. If you've got a Bible, you may want to just turn there. I'm going to launch there. I'm going to go lots of places this morning, but I'm going to start here in John 17. And there's this incredible prayer where we get a glimpse into what really mattered to Jesus. What was on his heart. This is just before he was betrayed and uh, arrested and beaten and crucified. And he's praying. In John 17, we read this incredible heart cry of prayer from Jesus. And at the beginning of John 17, he's praying for his own kind of role and being glorified. He's talking about the cross, what's happening. Then he's praying for his disciples, his immediate crowd of um, followers. And then if you look at verse 20, it might have this heading in your Bible. Jesus prays for all believers, which means 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying a prayer that was for us today in this school here in Liverpool. Because he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. We are here, followers of Jesus, because the disciples are faithful to the call to go to the nations and to make disciples of all nations. And 2,000 years later, we are the fruit of that here in England and here in this church. So Jesus here is praying for us. 
people that will believe in him through the message of those first disciples. And, and what's he praying? What, what's on his heart for the church when he's praying 2,000 years ago? It says this, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. See what he's praying for. He's not, he doesn't say, I pray that they may be really busy. Um, I pray that they may have really impressive websites. Um, I pray for their activity or their ministry. No, what he's praying for is our relationships. I pray, Father, that the believers who come as a response to the disciples' ministry will be one. Look what he says. I think this is one of the most extraordinary lines, actually. Just as you are in me and I am in you. So just think about Jesus' relationship with the Father, the beautiful thing that he enjoyed in the Trinity, this perfect relationship of mutuality and care and love and respect and affection and oneness. And his prayer is that somehow we in churches may enjoy a unity and a togetherness that mirrors what he enjoys in the Trinity with his Father. Now that kind of blows my mind. I don't know about you. That, that was his desire. For his church was a oneness and a togetherness and a unity that somehow we would reflect his relationship with his father. And then he says this, he says, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So the fruit of those right relationships is a world that looks upon the church and sees the gospel. It says there's something about how these guys do life together that points to the reality of God being real and that he sent his son Jesus. So this is what Jesus is praying for, our unity, our oneness. Somehow that is going to be the thing that says to a watching world, God is real. In fact, earlier in John 13, he says a similar thing when he's talking to his disciples. He says, um, a new command I give to you, love one another. By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. He doesn't say the whole world will know you're my disciples by your publicity or by your Sunday meetings or by your activity. It's by your relationships. That's how the world will know what really matters to you is how you guys work this out together in local churches. Now, all that other stuff's important. Don't worry. Uh, we have websites, publicity, Sunday meetings. I'm not diminishing all that. But sometimes we can focus on all that stuff. Well, actually, what Jesus is focusing on in his prayer is our relationships. For unity, I pray they may be one so that the world will know. So this is the thing. How we treat one another and how we speak about one another and how we are quick to forgive one another and how we are patient with one another will have a direct impact on our mission and our impact in the community in which we live. There is a link between our relationships and our fruitfulness in terms of how we tell the world there's a God and that we can know him through Jesus. Uh, I recently um, preached on prayer at my church and um, talked about the disciples' question, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus' response is, okay, when you pray, pray this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're just looking at what it means to pray. I don't know if you've ever noticed how Jesus' response to that isn't to say, when you pray, say, my Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive me my sins. Give me today my daily bread. He said, no, when you pray, it's our Father. This is a family prayer. We come to God together, to our Father. Give us today our daily bread. 
um, forgive us our sins. It's a community prayer. It's not an individualistic thing. And um, we live in a very me-centered individualistic culture. <laughs> and that can so easily come into the church. My father, give me what I need. Forgive me my sins. And um, that can come into the church. Does this church fulfill my needs? Is it going to help me, my relationship? Now, Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. It's a corporate prayer because actually this is so important on the heart of Jesus. But like I said, it's not easy, is it, sometimes working this all out? There's a guy called Pete Gregg. Anyone heard of Pete Gregg? He's an author, leads a 24-7 prayer movement, just written a new book called How to Pray. In it, he says this, we all need the encouragement, the challenge, and the discomfort of active participation in a local worshipping community. We need the encouragement of it. We need the challenge of it. And at times, the discomfort of it, of being together in community. It's much actually easier to just get on with it by yourself. That's why there's a load of people that say, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to worry about the church thing. Jesus would say, how can you love me and not worry about the church thing? Those two things are completely entwined. Your love for me has to be worked out in your relationships with other believers. We all need the encouragement, the challenge, and the discomfort of active participation in a local worshiping community. So my verse this morning, my core verse, is actually Ephesians 5.21. Like I said, I'm going to be popping around the place today. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit, therefore, to one another out of reverence, to Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you know the passage, um, you may know um, this is a letter written by a guy called Paul to a church in Ephesus. And after this verse comes a load of practical outworkings of that. So he talks about how we submit to one another in our marriages and then parents and children and then our masters and slaves, the workplace. But actually this stands alone as a verse to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and we'll talk about that word submit in a moment, but it's probably helpful just to know what comes before in Ephesians. If you know Ephesians, it's an amazing letter. The first three chapters are like this incredible description of the gospel. So it's like, we have been made alive. We were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Christ. We've been lavished with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been adopted as sons and daughters into the household of God. And this isn't by your own effort. It's by grace. It's not by your works that you're saved. It's by him. And you're his masterpiece. And he's created you for good works. And he's broken down every wall of hostility. And, and it's like the first three chapters, you should read it, are like this glorious description of what God has done through Jesus Christ for our salvation and rescue. Then you get to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is writing this in prison, and he says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So he says, basically, in, in light of all these amazing things that I've just told you about the gospel, these first three chapters, I really want to encourage you, live a life worthy of that. It's like, okay, great, what does that look like? Um, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bear with one another in love. It's like if the gospel has changed your life, be patient with one another in the church. Honor one another. And then it goes on to say, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. So it's like the gospel application is, okay, it's got to start first of all here in your relationships. And he gets really practical in chapter four. If you know it, he says things like this. 
Um, so don't let the sun go down on an argument. Anyone heard that line before? It's like, don't let the sun go down on an argument. And that's a really good principle like in families and in marriages. But actually, it's written to a church. So what he's saying is that if, if there's a disagreement, don't let the sun go down on that. Sort it out. Because otherwise, he says, the devil will get a foothold in the church and there'll be division. So if you fall out with someone, don't leave it. <laughs> Deal with it. And then he says things like this. So um, only speak what is helpful for building one another up. Wow. Just think about that. Only allow words that come out of your mouth that are going to build people up. So don't tear people down with your words. And he's speaking to a church. And at the end, he talks about be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. So it's incredibly practical, the Bible. We can kind of romanticize it sometimes, think what beautiful ancient prose this is. No, no, Paul's saying, look, because of the gospel, speak well of each other. If you have an argument, sort it out pretty quick. Why is he saying it? Because Paul knows what local churches are going to be like. Ordinary people trying to work out their faith together for the glory of God. So there's going to be moments where we're going to need this kind of practical advice. Beginning of chapter 5, follow God's example, or Elder Translation says, be imitators of God, therefore. Which is kind of a big ask, isn't it? Be imitators of God. You're like, how do I even do that? I mean, it's God. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. All right, so to imitate God means to give myself up for others. Okay, I've got, to, I've got to lay down my life. It's in that context that we get to this verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What, what does it mean out of reverence for Christ? Well, reverence means to respect, admire, think highly of, have an opinion, high opinion of, hold in high regard, esteem, think much of, approve of, appreciate, cherish, value, prize, treasure. Thank the Lord for Google Theosaurus. <laughs> Easy. What is he saying? He says, okay, if, you, if Jesus means anything to you, if you have any respect for Jesus, any admiration for Jesus, if you treasure Jesus, if you cherish Jesus, if you admire Jesus, then submit to one another. Because your relationship with one another says something about what you really think about Jesus. Submit to one another out of reverence, out of honor, respect, admiration, love worship for Christ. So the Bible's practical. Our worship is singing songs, but our worship is also how we talk about one another and our attitudes towards one another. If Jesus means something to you, it's got to be worked out in your relationships. It says that in other places in Philippians 2, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. And in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how Jesus laid down his life and became obedient to death. In your relationships, have the same attitude as Jesus who laid down his life, who submitted himself. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't come to church to tick our preferences. <laughs> we don't come to church because of our interests. The Bible says, no, no, you lay down your interests for the sake of others to serve them. Because that's what Jesus did. And though we submit to him out of reverence for him who emptied himself and humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even those who are called to lead local churches, what pastors are called to do is to live as servants, to not lord it over, but to serve, to lay down your life. So the Bible says, okay, if you're in a church, submit to your leaders, make their life a, a, a joy, not a burden. But then it says, but leaders, don't lord it over them. You're to serve. You're to lay down your life 
for the flock, like a shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. It's like everything is mutual submission. There's, there's no hierarchy. We submit to one another because we love Jesus. But there's a challenge in it because our culture sees submission as a dirty word. I don't know if you've noticed that. But our culture doesn't seem to like the idea of submitting to anyone. Like, who are you to say to me how I should live my life? I'm, it's my life. I, I don't, I'm not accountable. I can do what I want to do. So this idea of submission is a pretty challenging idea in our context and culture. Some places we have to submit. In the workplace, we have to submit to our boss or our line mo- manager. But sometimes we even do that pretty begrudgingly and reluctantly. Like, well, I have to because otherwise I won't have a job. But I don't really want to. The, there's moments where we have to submit if you're driving along and a car comes up in your rear view wing mirror with blue flashing lights. You probably have to submit in that moment to the law and to pull over. Happened to me once, faulty brake light. That was all it was, I can assure you. But there's a, there's a reluctance actually in our culture to do what the Bible says, to submit to one another. I might submit to someone if I think I can get something from them. Or they'll help me get up the ladder a little bit or help my progression up the social status ladder. But to lay down my life for people, no, I don't do that. Who, who, it's my life. Who are you to say what I should do? So this is a challenge in our culture to live this out. That's why the church should be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's why it's got to be an alternative society on earth. That somehow how we function has got to speak to a world and say, we're not going to play those games. There's something different about the people of God, that we're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. There's no hierarchy. So we submit to one another, honor one another, prefer one another. We look to the interests of others because we love Jesus. And there's no conditions here. There's not like a list of submit to one another um, if they deserve it or if they can offer you something or if you think you can learn something from them. There's no conditions. It's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want us to um, show a short video clip, if we can. It's a very, very old piece of film. So um, some historic British comedians called, oh, John Cleese, Ronnie Barker, and Ronnie Corbett. Some of you may remember or seen this clip. It's when comedy was a simpler art than it is um, today. So let's just have a look at this for the moment. Thank you, technical team. Technical teams are heroes, aren't they, in church life? Just fantastic. So we laugh at the kind of the simplicity of it and the hierarchy of it. And the reality is, um, in, in our world, there's all kind of hierarchies like that where we will put ourselves in a position. Well, I'll look up at you because of where I've seen you've gone on holiday on Facebook. But I'll look down on you. Or I'll look up at you because of how many people I see follow you on Instagram. But I'll look down on you because I've got more followers than you. Or we do it all the time. There is a classism that still exists. Very evidently in our culture, we know that in the UK, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. There is, um, uh, we make judgments based on people's historic, cultural, social backgrounds. And there's prejudices that exist deep-rooted that we may not even be aware of. And and this kind of status, this kind of hierarchy exists all over the place, actually. Based on wealth, based on celebrity, based on postcodes based on a historical cultural context, based on social media, happens all the time. Social media only exasperates our sense of inferiority and superiority because basically it exists to compare our lives with others and either feel inferior or superior. You know, I mean, that actually is a thing that's hugely paramount. This exists not in the church. 
The biblical vision is not in the church. We are one in Christ Jesus. No slave or free, no Jew or Greek, no educated or um, uneducated, no employed or unemployed, no rich or poor. We are one in Christ Jesus. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ so that the world may know there is a God who sent his son Jesus. There has to be something different in local churches that shine brightly to the world about how we do our relationships. That's why Jesus prayed that we would be one in Christ Jesus. In fact, the Bible goes further than that. It says we actually need each other in the church. I don't know if you know that, but you can look around all the people here, and actually the Bible says you need them in your life. Um, So there's a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about the church being like a body. Some of you will know this really well. It says the church is like a body and, and the hands cannot say, oh, I want to be a foot because the hands are hands. And the foot can't say, oh, I want to be an eye because the foot's a foot. And every bit of the body is absolutely essential. It's one thing but many, many parts, Paul says. And then he says things like this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. What's Paul saying? You cannot look at anyone else in this church and say, I don't need you. And and in the same way, no, you can't look at anyone else, and they can't look at you and say, I don't need you. You've been placed in this body for a reason, because you need one another. Um, We often think that we are, um, we go to local churches because of what we want. So, um, is there good kids' work? What's a coffee like? You know, can I park easily? You know, I mean, we have a list of what we want. The Bible, God is not interested, actually, in what you think you want from a local church. God says he's really interested in what you need from a local church. This um, passage in Corinthians, there's a couple of times where actually it says this. Paul says in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 12, In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Have you thought of that? That you're here this morning, there may be all reason, many reasons why you think you're in church today or part of this church, but actually what the Bible says is you're here because God wants you to be here. He's placed you in this local body because you need these people for your own growth in God and sanctification. And somehow because your relationship is going to say something about the gospel which is going to have an impact in the world. He says in verse 24 as well, God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. God puts churches together. So you might be here for all kinds of reasons. Relationships, you respect the elders, they're good guys, you like the venue, it's convenient. Um, But actually, there's a bigger picture going on. God has placed you in this body. And he's placed you in this body because you need the other people in this church and they need you. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Honor one another. It's very practical. God has a plan and you need one another. He's building this church. You're here for a reason. He puts us together and there should be, every part should have equal concern for one another. Notice that, equal concern for one another. Not hierarchical concern, equal concern. He even says that those parts of the body that are least desirable in the world should be deserving of special honor. So in the, in the church, yeah, I mean, those social statuses doesn't matter anymore. So someone might be dishonored in the world, but in the church they have special honor because that's how the kingdom works. It's completely countercultural. And we need to be so careful because we can so easily drift in 
to how the world does relationships. Well, do you upset me? Great, well, I'll just keep you at a distance then. It'd just be easier. I can sit opposite sides of the room. I don't have to come too close to you. And actually, the Bible said, no, no, we need to bear with one another and forgive and be patient. And, and or we can say, actually, I can see how you might offer me something in my growth in God, but you, I'm not really sure. And the Bible says, no, no, you need everyone for your growth. That's why God's put you in this body. You need one another. It's hugely important across backgrounds and ages and stories and experiences, but <laughs> it's not easy, is it? There is huge potential in the local church to wind each other up. I've been a pastor 11 years, and I know that all too well. Huge potential to uh, misunderstand one another, frustrate one another. In fact, as we were worshipping, I just had just this sense in God. There are people here, I'm so glad you're here today, but you've been burnt relationally in a local church. And um, it was painful. And the problem is, because churches are filled with ordinary people, there is huge potential for that to happen. And I just felt God was saying he really wants to bring some healing through the Holy Spirit to you because it's like you're here, but in your heart you are keeping it at a distance, even maybe subconsciously, just because of past experiences. And I get that. I I've, I know what it is to be hurt by people in the local church. And I know people who have been hurt because of the local church. And what can happen is we can therefore, we would engage, but we'll just keep ourselves a little bit removed. And actually, I believe God is wanting to restore something. God's a God of restoration. God's a God of healing. And actually, maybe the reason God wants you in this body is because there's a healing and restoration for you. Uh, and I don't know, maybe we'll get a chance to pray for that later. But the realities are that churches can be painful places sometimes. It's interesting, that verse in Ephesians that I read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, just comes a few lines after Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. And grammatically, the submit to one another out of reverence of Christ follows on from the instruction to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. It is impossible in our own resources to have that kind of relationship with one another without the Spirit. That's why Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that brings unity. It's the Holy Spirit that brings a oneness. And so the outcome of being filled with the Holy Spirit is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, because we need the Holy Spirit. I think um, in our churches, we charismatic churches like we are in New Frontiers, we love the gifts of the Spirit, don't we? So we love um, words of prophecy and words of knowledge. We've had those and benefited from those this morning. We love gifts of healing. We love the gift of tongues. We love works of miracles. So we're very, very eager for the spiritual gifts. I don't know if we talk enough about the spiritual fruits. Um, I don't know if you um, notice that in Galatians 5, if you're not familiar with it, there's a bit of the Bible that talks about there being a fruit of the Spirit. So there's gifts of the Spirit that help our ministry, but there's fruits of the Spirit. And if you look at the fruits of the Spirit, they're all to do with our relationships. It says um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's all about relationships. So actually, if you need patience for one another, you're not going to find it in yourself. You need to ask for the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of your life will lead to patience or self-control. I need, I, I'm a, I've got four kids. I can remember there's a moment when um, 
my boys, when they were much younger, decided to draw pictures on my car with a rock. And, um, and it's in those moments where you realize how practical the Bible is. And I'm like, I'm going crazy, like, oh my goodness, but they're only like three and five or something. And I've still got it. I haven't got the car here, but you can still see the pictures of this stick man on my car. And I was just like going crazy. And I'm like, I need patience. I haven't got any. I'm out. In fact, I said to our so cross, I can remember driving in the car. And I said to my boy Levi, I said, Levi, you just can't do that. I'm so cross that you've done that. And um, you're not going to be able to watch TV after school on Friday. And no sweets Friday. Friday sweet Friday in my house. You're not having any sweets in Friday on Friday. And he just paused. And he then went, Daddy, that is not acceptable. <laughs> That's what my five-year-old said. <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, give me patience right now. I need patience. Because this isn't, we sometimes read these verses like theological nice ideas. No, we're going to need to be patient with one another. We're going to need to be gentle with one another. We need to have self-control and hold our tongue sometimes. Now, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, he keeps no record of wrongs. Anyone ever heard that read at a wedding? Um, you know what I mean, about uh, uh, prophecy without love is just like a clanging symbol. And like, what a beautiful poem about love. No, it's not. It's not written to a married couple or to an engaged couple. It's written to a fundamentally dysfunctional and divided church who think they're spiritual because they have loads of prophetic words. And Paul says to them, your prophecy means nothing if you don't love one another. In fact, it's just annoying. Like when I, when I hear your prophetic words, I'm like, that's just an annoying noise because I know how divided you are. And so he says to them, so love, love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Please put the spiritual gifts to one side for the moment until you work out how to be kind to each other and how you keep no record of wrongs and how you persevere because love never gives up, actually. That's, that's a very practical instruction to the church in Corinth because we need the Holy Spirit to help us in our relationships Jesus never imagined the church would be a place where we turn up once a week, shake hands with someone on the way out, and have no contact with those people for the rest of the week until we come for our service again. He envisaged a community, a family that somehow would reflect his relationship with his father, a oneness and a unity that says to the world, there's a God. But it needs the Holy Spirit. We need the fruit of the Spirit in our relationships. So let's get really practical. How do you know if you need the fruit of the spirit of patience unless you're putting yourself in a relationship where it might require you to be patient? Or how would you know if you need the Holy Spirit to give you the fruit of self-control if you only hang out with people that you like and agree with you? Actually, it's in our diversity and our difference that the fruits of the spirit are most displayed. It's when we intentionally put ourselves in situations of people who aren't like us and who don't agree with us and who might wind us up or frustrate us that we have to say, okay, what does it mean for me in this place to love one another, to serve one another, to submit, to bear, to be patient, to keep the unity of the spirit? I'll see you advertising life groups. Life groups are a great place to put this into practice. You know the Bible says, don't just be listeners of the words, but be doers of that. Well, actually, how are we doers of the word if we keep ourselves distant relationally? How do we express the oneness that Jesus prays for if we're not in those places? <laughs> not in those places where we have to actually think, well, what does it mean for me? 
It's very easy to get on with people if you don't get close to them. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's very easy to get on with everyone if you actually don't get close enough for someone to wind you up. But actually, that isn't the church. We have to get close enough to one another in order for those things to think, okay, God, what are you teaching me about humility or or selfishness or self-interest or kindness or patience? And life groups are a great place to say, I'm going to intentionally invest my life in a group of people that I might not ordinarily choose to hang out with because I want to grow in the fruits of the Spirit and because I want to fulfill what Jesus prayed that we may be one. And I don't want that just to be people that I get on with. Do you see what I mean? The, The Bible is practical. We've got to become doers of the words as well as just hearers of it. Doing something countercultural where the world will say, wow, I can see you're different, but you're one. What is that? Ah, oh, there's a God. He's changed our lives through Jesus Christ. We're one because of him. Yeah, we've got different stories. Ordinarily, you wouldn't have this group of people in our church just a week or so ago. My dad visited for the morning. I was chatting to him. We've got a couple of guys who um, are serious um, weightlifters. I mean, they're absolutely huge. One of them six foot four, and they're massive. They, they, can't, they um, are mates, they sit together, but they have to take up four chairs because they're that wide. And um, in our meeting, we have a moment where we get people to chat and say hi, and they turned around, and they're this tiny little lady in our church who said to them, I can't see anything of what's going on up there because I'm sat behind you. But I was chatting to my dad. He said, did you see them? They're like wrestlers. I said, yeah, yeah, uh, it's... Um, Rich and Nick, they're great guys. And I look down and there's a, a, a small table in our coffee house of, um, of three very elderly, frail ladies. And, and Nick and Rich were standing next to them. And then I saw Alistair, who's street homeless, who comes every Sunday. And um, he's just doing great. He's in one of our Bible study courses. He comes every week. And then I saw a new Indian family who just joined us from Kerala um, over the other side. And I just looked up and thought, where else in mid-Sussex do you see this? Where? And it's a powerful statement about the kingdom of God. We are one in Christ Jesus. Let me start landing, then I'll pray. Okay, so Ephesians 5, verse 1. Let me go back to that verse again if you've got your Bibles open. So just before he says, submit to one another, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Like I said earlier, that's a big ask. How do we imitate God? He himself said he's other than us. His ways are higher than our ways, thoughts higher than our thoughts. How do we imitate God? Well, what's Paul talking about here is, he says there's beloved children. We're, we're in the family of God now, so we take on the family likeness. I, um, my, I see my kids do things that I do. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. So I heard my six-year-old Joseph the other day say, Oh, my days! And I thought, what six-year-old says, oh, my days? And I thought, oh, yeah, I say, oh, my days all the time. So he's got it from there. We were having a meal the other day, and the food was really good. I mean, it was great food. I, I'm, I'm a fan of food. And I'm, at the end of the meal, I, I kid you not, I did this. I picked up my plate and started licking it because it was so good. And I could feel my wife kind of just staring at me. And I am just instantly know, oh, my goodness, put my plate down. And both my boys went, okay, pick up their plate. <laughs> Started licking their food off the plate because kids imitate what they see their parents do. Be imitators of God as, as dearly beloved children. Now, how do we know what that is? If only there was one who had gone before us that showed us what that looks like. If only we had a role model. If only we had an example of a child of God who shows us in practice what it means to imitate God. And then we think, well, of course we do. And his name is Jesus. He shows us what this verse means. Be an imitator of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ 
loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So why should we give our lives up for one another? Because Christ gave his life up for us. Just think about Jesus, the image of the invisible God. All things are made for him and through him, the Bible says. He was there in the beginning. All the creation is for him, through him. And he became submitted to Mary as an infant, utterly dependent on, uh, on Mary, this teenage girl. Humbled himself, became utterly dependent. Just think about that story when Jesus um, washes the disciples' feet. It's the lowest job of the household to wash feet in that culture. And it says Jesus took a towel, he knelt on the floor, and he started washing his disciples' feet, including Peter, who he knew was about to betray him, um, deny him, and Judas, who he knew had sold him for silver. And yet Jesus knelt down, submitted his life even to Judas on that night, and washed his feet, and then said, see, I've set you an example <laughs> of what Christian ministry looks like. Was Judas deserving of it? Was Jesus worthy of this submission? Was Jesus in, in any way going to offer Jesus anything? No, but Jesus gave himself. He laid down his life, even for Judas. Think about Jesus um, being nailed to a cross by bar barbaric Roman soldiers. We know, the Bible clearly tells us, if he wanted to, he could have called down an angelic army right in that moment to rescue him. Now, with one word, he stilled a storm. With one word, he said, be still, and the storm was stilled. With one word in that moment, he could have said, no, no, I'm not doing this, and cool down. That's what the Bible says. He submitted his life to barbaric Roman soldiers. Why? For the sake of relationship, for the joy set before him, the church, he endured the cross. For the vision of this, us, together, 2,000 years later, he submitted his life even to Roman soldiers he gave himself up, became obedient to death, laid down his life. And Paul says, right, be imitators of God as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Which is why the verse says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If there's anything that I've said today, I hope what you will remember is this, that our worship is not just defined to the songs that we sing but the attitudes that we have to one another and what it displays about the kingdom of God. Can I pray? Is that okay? Um, should we stand together? Is that all right? Let's pray and then I'll hand back to Chris maybe. Why don't we just, I'm just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come because we need the Holy Spirit. Who, who knows they need the Holy Spirit after that <laughs> message? I know I do. Father, you said that we could come to you and ask in the door uh, and it will be given Knock and the door will be open, seek and we will find. And, and the Bible says that whoever asks for the Holy Spirit, the Father will love to pour out as the Father gives good gifts to the children. So we pray, Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit afresh in us? We want to be men and women who are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of unity and oneness, so that, Lord God, we can submit to one another out of our love and reverence and adoration and respect for Christ. So help us, Lord. I pray, Lord God, help us where we feel like our patience tank is running empty. We can't find reserves in and of ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to come because we know the fruit of the Spirit is patience or self-control or gentleness or kindness. Whatever it is we need, you are able to supply. Lord, we know how limited we are. We know, Lord God, how craggy we get when we're tired. 
We know, Lord God, how quick we are to become defensive. We know how quick we are to react. We need the Holy Spirit. I want to pray that Freedom Church Liverpool, for whatever it's known for, will be known for its unity and its fellowship and the depth of relationships that exist here, the unity of the Spirit. Lord, I, I want to prophesy that over this church, of that actually there'll be something so gloriously countercultural and kingdom cultural here in this community that it shouts out to this city, there is a God. Look what he's done. I pray for that. And I pray for anyone here who has been burnt in local churches, relationships that have caused pain. We are fully aware of the potential for that. And Lord God, we, we're gutted every time we hear of it. Lord, we want to pray, Lord, like you prayed, that we would be one. And I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray for healing and restoration. Lord, I pray where trust has been eroded, that it would be rebuilt. Lord, you are the one that restores. You're the one that turns um, mourning into dancing. That um, It says you will restore the years that the locusts have stolen. There will be um, new streams in the desert. There will be new fruitfulness. I pray for anyone, Lord God, in that situation here today. Lord, I pray, Lord God, for a trust in you that you are able to restore and bring into a, fruish, a, a fruitful season again of kingdom life. I pray for it, Lord God, because I believe this is what you are praying for, interceding for the saints. And so I want to join with that prayer. Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus, you pray that we may be one so the world may know that you were sent. Lord, I pray for people in this church to know the healing kindness of God from pains that have come before. And I pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.